In every church, I think, there are at least two groups of people. And probably if you're not in one of those groups, there's a spectrum between them upon which you fall. But the first group is a group that recognizes God as high and exalted. And this group is worried that God is angry with them. Every negative event in their lives, they interpret as a a message from God that He has in fact been disappointed in them, that they haven't measured up. And they're looking over their shoulder always to wonder when the next shoe is going to drop and God is going to express His anger with them again. And then I think there's probably another group who is not concerned about that at all. Because they have in their minds that God never gets angry. That God is nothing but a cosmic nice guy. He would never cross you. He would never do anything that you didn't like. And if something happens in your life that you don't like, God has no part of it. And so, I think there are at least these two groups of people and probably there is a spectrum in between uh, where some of the time, uh, mostly when I'm sinning, right? (laughs) I don't want to think that God ever gets angry and it'll be okay. We'll make up later. And then if somebody sins against me, I'm generally more over here thinking, yeah, God should really get them, you know. They shouldn't be doing that. And what happens, you see, as you, as you think about this, particularly if you are over here on uh, this end of the spectrum, thinking that God is angry with you, you are looking at the circumstances of your life and trying to read the tea leaves of your situation to see if in fact God is happy or mad or what kind of mood God's in today. So I think that's one of the things that we haven't really come to grips with. Is that we're looking at our circumstances primarily and maybe our relationships and the things that we have uh, that affect us and we're wondering, I wonder what kind of mood God is in today. And I want to suggest that we're looking in the wrong place to find out what kind of mood God is in today. But the reality is, we can't really escape our circumstances, right? I mean, they are what they are. We wake up in the morning and we are who we are. We're in the family we're in. We're, you know, we're in the circumstances we're in. And there's nothing that appears that's going to change that. And so, when the circumstances shout that God is angry with you, when they more than suggest that heaven is frowning on you, what do you do then? See, most of us don't have a hard time 
when things are good. It's like, oh yeah, things are good. God's good. Life's good. Everything's good. But when, on the other hand, things are not good, that's when we don't really know how to handle it. Well, the good news is that Psalm 60 helps us with that. Psalm 60 is in uh, one respect, I suppose you could say, David's attempt to come to grips with that very thing himself. How can I sing in church on a sunny morning that by His love I live? That I glory in His love. Those are the two songs you've sung already, you know. And yet my circumstances don't feel that way. What do I do then? And so that's really where Psalm 60 intersects our experience. It's not in the good times, but really in the harder times. So let's look at it um, little by little, and I hope that it will help you process the times when you feel like life has knocked you down and you are not sure you can get up another time. It starts off with this superscription or this title. It says, To the choir master, according to Shushan Iduth, a mictum of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. What? You completely get that, right? I don't need to say anything about that, probably. Well, there isn't a ton to say about it, actually. I mean, other than the fact it's meant to be sung, uh, and the tune is given, Shushani Duth. Okay, it's a miktum for your instruction. You are to learn something by this. And he apparently wrote it on the occasion when Joab returned from striking down 12,000 in Edom in the Valley of Salt. Probably first, or probably 2 Samuel chapter 8. But that's about all I got for you. Because this particular situation is not mentioned in Samuel. And so we don't know what happened. And I want to suggest to you that most likely the occasion for Psalm 60 is that David had experienced this long string of victories. I mean, starting with Goliath. And, I mean, basically undefeated season after season, right? State championship after state championship. Nothing ever went wrong. Until this one day. And he didn't see it coming at all. All he expected was that God would help him win. Until he didn't. And so it looks as though perhaps the army was gone fighting with Joab. And then, while the army was away, an enemy crept in and defeated them. 
in some disappointing way. And so David didn't see this coming. He didn't expect it. God's blessing had always meant that he would win. The fact that he was sure that God loved him had always meant that he would win. Until he didn't win. And you see, I'm not sure that most of us experience this long string of victories. Maybe you do. I'd love to hear that you do. But if you're more like me, your, your winning streak might be like two in a row. <laughs> and then there's another disappointment. And Psalm 60, I think, is written in the shadow of this kind of disappointment. A disappointment you didn't see coming. A disappointment that you thought you wouldn't experience because God loves you. And so here we are, not sure if in fact God loves us still. Not sure if God somehow is out of control of life. Maybe He does love me, He just can't help me. And so, it's that circumstance, I believe, that um, prompted David to write Psalm 60. And so, this is what it says. Oh God, You have rejected us. Broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You'll notice a couple things here. You notice, first of all, this is a direct address to God. You could even say a direct accusation to God. David in his prayer is not necessarily being kind or gentle with God in his prayer. You've rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You've been angry. And he is complaining straight away. He's not beating around the bush. He's not pretending everything's okay. He's not giving some sort of Sunday school answer where he folds his hands, bows his head, closes his eyes, and is certain that things will go his way because he's doing it right. Instead, he's not beating around the bush. Now, I'm just going to stop here because I'm not convinced that God has rejected David. In fact, I'm pretty sure He hasn't. And I'm not really convinced that God is angry with David. There's nothing that would suggest, short of this one episode, that God would be angry with David. Nothing in Samuel says He's angry. Nothing later in the psalm when God responds to this suggests God's angry. See, and that, that I think is helpful. Because David feels as though God is angry, whether God is angry or not. And that, I think, is the thing where most of us wrestle. And most of us have an experience or there's something in our lives when we think about it, it says, God must not love me. He must be angry. Otherwise, this would never happen to me. 
But I'm not convinced that God is angry with David. It's just that David in his prayer expresses his feeling that God is. And so he complains on the one hand and prays on the other. Oh God, you've rejected us, broken our defenses, you've been angry. Restore us. And see, one of the advantages of coming straight at God and not beating around the bush and not pretending, not being over on this other side where God never crosses me, never does anything bad, never does anything, you know, never is negative in any way, is that when you have a negative experience, you can talk to God about it. And you can ask Him to restore you. You can do that. And so David does restore us. Then he says, you have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. So his understanding is the world itself is shaking. The news every night on his TV makes him certain the world's about to crumble. That's his complaint. And so he complains and then he prays. Notice this rhythm. This is not this is not a pretend everything's okay rhythm. This is not the if you do it right, then God will answer your prayer kind of thing. This is about as honest as he could be. Where he's admitting the world looks like it's about to crumble, and then God, would you repair its brokenness, its breaches? Because it's about to tip over. It totters. And maybe it's a worldwide thing. Maybe it's your reaction to the news. Maybe it's your reaction to a visit to the doctor. Or a conversation with a family member. Or some other thing that makes you think, this world's about to tip, my world's about to tip over. God, would you repair it? And so there is this complaint and this prayer. And I want to commend that to you as a way to deal with those defeats, with those unexpected disappointments. Come to God with both the complaint and the request. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Again, notice his direct, um, you know, accusation against God. Now, if if I'm saying God, you've made me see hard things. If God was super nice, like so many people think He is, you'd think that God's immediate response when God gets His chance to respond would be, "Oh, wait a minute, you've really misunderstood me. I, you know, I I didn't have any part of this." Those, those bad things in your life, you know, those just, just kind of snuck around me. or I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with those. Well, I'm going to tell you, God has absolutely no concern to respond to that. When you see God speak in just a moment, He could care less that David said, you've made your people see hard things. You've made me see hard things. You're making me stagger like I'm drunk or like somebody beat me up. 
You have set a banner for those who fear You, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. Again, Selah makes us stop and think about this. Which we've been doing all along, but we're going to stop and think just a moment longer because the complaint now is a little more extended, right? You noticed in, in the pre- preceding verse that he didn't come back with a prayer. He just extends now his uh, complaint. In fact, this, it's important that you see this as a complaint, I think. You've set up a banner for those who fear you. Sometimes when God sets up a banner, like in the Song of Solomon, his banner over me is love. You see this as a sort of a victory thing. Like there is a flag on the horse in the front of the army and they're all charging across the valley and the music is playing and they're about to win. Okay? That's not this banner. But I know it's not the banner because the next phrase says that they may flee to it from the bow. (laughs) So instead of charging at the army, it's like running from the army. And instead of the banner of victory, it is this white flag in the back. Yeah, come back here. We'll we'll keep you safe. They turn around and run. That is not a good thing. That's not what the commander-in-chief wants for his army. It is a continuing disappointment. And so his complaint to God is, God, you you are continuing to disappoint me. I am continuing to be hurt here. Don't you even care? And so stop and think about that. Because most of us don't have language for this kind of struggle with God. Most of us have a very simplistic view that if circumstances are good, God is good. If circumstances are bad, somehow God is bad or angry. When in fact, God can be good and circumstances can be bad. God can love you and your life can be hard. God can be your God and you can feel distant from Him. And so this complaint in prayer rhythm is really what you will need over the course of your life when it doesn't go like you think it should go. And so we pause to think about it. Selah. And then, then he re-engages the prayer. So the complaint was extended. Now the prayer is extended. That your blessed ones may be delivered. Give salvation by Your right hand and answer us. I want you to notice here, in spite of His, God, You're angry. God, You've you know, made us stagger. You've given me just... It's been too hard. He also affirms, I am your beloved. God, you still love me. God, that your beloved ones may be delivered. 
Give salvation by Your right hand and answer us. And so He extends His complaint and now He extends His petition to say, God, I must have You save me or I won't be saved. I can't stand Your silence. Will You answer us? So He extends His petition. So complaint, petition, complaint, petition, complaint, petition. And then, there's a break. And the prayer ends. The conversation coming from David ends. And God steps in to speak. Now this is this is important because given what given what we assume about God, that God would be really mad at David for for accusing him of doing something negative, right? I assume that. So I expect the first thing God's going to say is, "Wait a minute." The first thing God's going to say is, "Let me tell you how this really is." God's going to somehow set the record straight and confront David about complaining to him. God could care less about doing that. There is nothing, there is nothing in this response from God that says he's at all offended by the fact that David complained. Which is a great encouragement to me because I feel like I need to complain a few times too. And so, God has spoken in His holiness. If God speaks in His holiness, what are you to do? You know, if He's speaking in His holiness, I mean, it sounds like sounds like Mount Sinai, right? Where there were forty days and there was darkness and lightning and thunder and the whole mountain shook. And God is serious about what He's about to say. This is not the time to check your phone. This is not the time to get distracted. Because God is speaking in His holiness. And when God speaks in His holiness, what does He want to say? That's really what, the, what, what that preface uh, encourages us to ask. If God is really going to say this out of His holiness, what do I need to know? You need to know this. With exultation or with happiness and rejoicing, with this shout of victory, I'm going to divide up Shechem. And I'm going to portion out the vale or the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Is God just off topic here? I don't think so. I think the answer to David's complaint, to the answer to David's 
momentary defeat is the fact that God is King over all. That there isn't an inch of dirt in Manasseh or Ephraim or Judah or Moab or Edom or Gilead that does not belong to the king. That's what God says in His holiness. God wants you to know that this light and momentary defeat is not a problem. That the ultimate victory is not in question. That God, in fact, wins. In fact, that's really, I mean, he, he talks about what is his. He talks about how he's going to divide up Shechem, the valley, Manasseh, Ephraim. All of the land around the, the land that he promised to his people, in the land inside that he promised to his people, it's his to give. Don't worry about it. A light and momentary defeat is not going to stop the King of Kings from His ultimate triumph. And you'll notice even when I say King of Kings, that's the language, right? Ephraim is my helmet. The, the warrior dresses for battle. Judah is my scepter. The king sits on his throne and rules. Then, just to make sure that you don't take this too seriously, Moab's in my wash basin. I throw my shoes on Edom. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Here, here God is saying, you know what? I wash my hands over here, Moab. I mean, when, when I'm a little dirty, I just wash my hands over here. This is like my bathroom. And Edom, well, that's like my, my closet. This is not a big deal. I got this. I am in charge. The rebellion of whatever group this was that gave David this defeat, they will ultimately bow before the King of Kings. And so God, in happiness, God, with joy and exultation, claims victory and claims being a king of kings. You're, you're not going to need something that God cannot provide. I read something this week, even as we were kind of getting... Tim was asking me about how to get something on prayer for the bulletin board, and he sent me some quotes, and I looked some up some other ones. And one, one that I looked up a book on prayer that I read years ago, and there was this quote I highlighted. It's not really very fancy. It just says, "There is no need to pray to wimps. Nobody prays to a wimp." I mean, here you have David complaining and then praying to a God who reminds us that He rules over all. Don't you dare question this God. And so, 
That's God's response. So what does God have to say to David's complaint in his prayer? It's like, I'm the king. Don't worry about it. You can trust me. You know, I was thinking about this and I was uh, praying uh, about it this morning when I had my quiet time. And I, I just happened to be reading Jeremiah chapter 51. I'm going to read through the Bible thing, so just in case you think, oh, we, we, he just always reads in Jeremiah. No. <laughs> Jeremiah 51, God is, God is judging the most powerful nation on earth, Babylon, at this time. And he's explaining what he's going to do in the future to Babylon. And then it says this, speaking about God. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult in the waters of the heavens. And He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And He brings forth wind from His storehouses. Is there any question He can answer your prayer? Is there any question that He is able to do what He promised He would do? And then I began to think, this says this all the time in the Bible. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Yeah, you're not praying to a wimp. Job Job had the same complaint, didn't he? God, I don't understand why I'm suffering like I am. I don't understand why my circumstances are not better. I have done all these things right. And it all comes down at the end and God, you know, God asks him questions that he can't answer. And then finally Job repents. And this is how he, this is how he expresses his repentance. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The fact that while Joab was off winning this battle, we lost another battle, that's not going to stop God's purpose. That's not going to keep God from keeping His promise. That's not going to somehow frustrate God when God is set out to be faithful and loving to His people. And so you have David's complaint in his prayer. And then you have this response from God that just says, David, 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 your perspective is far too narrow. And then David picks up his prayer again. And he says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Now, I don't expect this either. What David is saying here is that he is done complaining, but he is re enlisting. He is back in the saddle. 
He might have been thrown from the horse, but He is climbing back on again. And now, God, my prayer is, who is going to lead me out in battle? Who is going to lead me to Edom? Who is going to lead me to the fortified city? God, I am following You as King. Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you not go forth with our armies? You do not go forth with our armies. And his, you know, what he just said in verse 9 and what he says in verse 10 appear to be in conflict, but I think you could translate this a little bit different way. It's like, God, it, it seems as though you've rejected us. Not going forth with our armies. And so his appeal was, God, you will lead us. Right? In verse 9. Even though it appeared at first that you weren't, God, would you lead us? Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. And it appears that this psalm is for our instruction, right? It said that in the, in the uh, superscription. It appears that David has been instructed in something as well. It appears that David has learned a little bit about this. When he says, vain is the salvation of men. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big the army is. It doesn't matter how fast the horse is or how true the arrow is because God can save by many or few. Ultimately, salvation and victory come from the Lord. Which is why the complaint went to the Lord. right? Which is why the concern is about the Lord. Because ultimately, it is God who brings this. And if I'm trusting in some intermediate means, something else, an army or a shield or a battle or a computer or some other thing, vain is that salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord. And then he continues. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Now I mentioned that, that this prayer at the end is David re-enlisting. This is, a, this is a prayer of action now. It's not a prayer of passive acceptance of all the bad things God's going to send my way. This is now a prayer of action. God, let's go. God, I am with You. But, You are in the lead. God, I want to be involved. But You must do it. You see that here, right? With God. Look at it. It's not, God will do valiantly. It's not that. It's close, but it's not that. It's with God. We shall do valiantly. Do you realize that the Christian life and even a complaint or a prayer or things go badly, it's not passive. I'm not just sitting there taking whatever comes, accepting whatever God sends my way. It is like, I, I mean, the whole prayer is a prayer of action. I'm disappointed because 
I was obeying God. That's what, that's what David's saying. I was doing God's thing and it didn't work out. That's not going to keep me down. I'm going to step back in trusting that God will lead me and make me successful. Because ultimately it is He who treads down our enemies. It is God who brings the victory. It is God who will bring salvation. And He will do it through means of the active, obedient Christian, you see. That's what He... That's what he leaves us with in this prayer. That a God who is able to bring salvation to those who trust Him. So, see, and trust trust doesn't look like, hey God, I'm going to stay in my palace and you go out there and whip those Edomites. I'm going to stay here, God, and you go do you know, whatever it is you need to do, but I'm just going to you know, pray. It's not just pray. It's pray and obey Him. It's pray and trust Him in life. And ultimately, ultimately David understood the character and nature and promises of God that he expressed there in those few verses in the center. So David could actively trust Him. And what I want to do this morning is to encourage you to actively trust in the Lord. So every day, day by day, step by step, one day after the next, put your faith in God. Because He is the sovereign King and He will bring salvation. Now I say that you know, I say that as though I'm supposed to say that, right? As though that's just sort of a throwaway thing that preachers are supposed to say. And David had that, he had some of the Word of God that you had. He did know about the earth shaking and the world tottering and God speaking in His holiness on Mount Sinai. He knew that. But you have it better than David. You have even more information about who God is and what God is doing than David did. Because you have the way that God has revealed Himself in Christ. You know that the same God that says, I'm going to divide up the valley of Sukkoth, that Ephraim is my helmet, Judas my scepter, you know, I'm going to throw my shoes on Edom. That same God, who is king above all kings, has pledged himself in the person of his son. First of all, that he loves you. God demonstrates his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not just that. I mean, you can be pretty certain that if He's going to put His own Son on the cross to express His love for you, that He means it. But then, but then if you're over here and you're wondering, you know what, I... I wonder when the next shoe is going to drop. I know God's angry with me. I know He's looking. I know that tomorrow's going to be bad again. 
because God is angry with me. You need to know that what God did for you on the cross in the person of Jesus is to say He's not angry any longer with you. But it is also to say that He does in fact care about sin. So much so that He would put His own Son on the cross in order to forgive it. So you can't be over here and you can't stay over there. You have to come where David came, where you can trust God so that you can actively live day by day trusting that God will win and that He will save you. Here's, here's the way that it's expressed uh, later in Romans. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I am disappointed in myself all the time. That's what Romans 7 is. Who's going to help me? Where can I gain victory? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the sovereign God saying, this is my victory. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And here's what God says of that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The looking over your shoulder thing, you don't need to do that. If you trust Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you have not trusted in Christ, you don't have this certainty. But if your faith is completely in Christ, you can, you can know that you don't have to look over your shoulder and worry about God anymore. And so I invite you, if you've not trusted in Jesus, to trust Him this morning. Because there is great freedom in not having to be afraid. In fact, that's what the next verse says. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that the victory that you need comes not from your effort, but from the victory Christ has won, which is exactly Romans, or excuse me, exactly Psalm 60, which says, through God we will do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. And there is no greater foe than sin and death, which is defeated by Christ. So that later in this chapter, in Romans chapter 8, He can say we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. May God help us to see Him for who He is so that we can, we can trust Him when our circumstances confuse us. We don't have to read the tea leaves of our circumstances because we can read the Scripture which says that God will win. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do trust You and we need You. And we admit with David that vain is the help of men. We are not up for this ourselves. We can't get somebody else to do it well enough for us. We need Christ. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to trust Him. Help us to actively trust so that we might step forth in faith 
knowing that any success we have comes from you, knowing that any defeat that we experience is not final. And so, Father, we express again our trust and ask you to help us when we have a hard time trusting you. We ask this because of Jesus. Amen.